This morning we're going to continue our study in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in verses 4 through 7 of chapter 13. So if you don't have a Bible, you can find one provided for you in the back of the pew in front of you. And, and we'd love for you to take that home if you don't have a copy of God's Word. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you're going to find a table of contents at the front of it like most uh, other books. And you can find 1 Corinthians in there. And the chapters are going to be the larger numbers and verses are going to be those smaller numbers. So again, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. So really, in, in some sense, as we're kind of talking through this idea of, of Christian unity and how we gather and why we gather and why we're together, Paul has picked up on something that is lacking there in Corinth. And you remember last week we talked about the fact that the thing that is lacking there, all of what chapter 13 really centers on, is the idea of love. And so he ran through in verses 1 through 3 all the various things. He said, basically, if you can do this, but you don't have love, it's worthless. If, if you know this, but don't have love, it's worthless. If you engage in this action, in fact, in verse 3, he said, look, if you give everything you've got away to the poor, but you've not done it out of a sense of love for the person who is impoverished, then it is an empty gesture. It's, it's worthless, even though now you are, are bereft of everything you have, even though now you have impoverished yourself this action and this action alone is, it's an empty gesture, so to speak. And so what Paul does next in 4 through 7 is he quotes some of the, or he, he pins rather, some of the, the more quotable lines found within the New Testament. And so if you've been to any number of weddings, likely you've heard this read. You've either read it for someone or you have read it yourself for someone at their wedding. And so we see 4 through 7 is used in that. And so it's kind of setting the stage in that, that, that matrimony scene for what we hope for this man and what we hope for this woman and what we hope their future looks like. But I, I want to just offer a word of clarity and a word of caution before we go through this, okay? If, if today when you hear these words and, and you, you hear things like it bears all, it believes all, it hopes all, it endures all, it's patient and kind, all these various things, if today, where you sit, you're in an abusive relationship. If today, where you sit, you're in an abusive relationship uh, as either the husband or, or the wife or the boyfriend or the girlfriend. If today, where you sit, this is you and this is your reality and you are suffering abuse, these words don't apply to your relationship. These words invalidate your relationship in some sense, but they aren't an endorsement for the behavior that you're receiving. So I just want to be really clear because... I think there's this, this thing that goes on that's twisted and perverted in the mind of the abuser to take the words of sacred scripture and to validate abusive behavior. And so if this is you, and you hear these words and you say, this love sounds foreign because all of these things are used to bring pain into my life, if this is you, man, we stand ready to support you, to care for you, to help you be safe today. So today when this is over, today when we're done speaking, come and see me, see one of the other elders, let us help you get out of abuse. If you're the one who's abusing, you're angry, you're hurt, whatever reason, whatever rationale you're using for abuse, Abuse is unacceptable. We want to help you as well. We want to help you figure out where your anger is coming from. We want to help you 
see what has broken down that allows you to think that you can treat someone this way. We care for you as well. Okay? Today when this is over, seek me out. Seek one of the elders out. We're a church that wants to speak into abuse and we want to care for those who are suffering abuse and we want to seek uh, to build back and work for the restoration of the abuser as well. So if, if you're in either one of those roles, we want to speak with you today. So Paul has gone through and has, has kind of set up the emptiness of the Christian life if love's not part of it. And, and certainly we see that in our experience. Now, this creates a significant problem. In John 13 and verse 35, Jesus speaking to the disciples wanted to let them know what kind of the seminal characteristic would be of them and, and of kind of the disciples and those that follow Jesus. And he says, by this, people will know you by your love for one another. So right there, we're just kind of nailed to the wall. So in some sense, if you're a Christian and somebody comes up and they say, well, tell me what you know about Matt. And they're like, he is the most loveless person ever. And I'm like, well, that's, that's kind of rough. Like, loveless ever? You're like, okay, maybe Hitler, more loveless. Uh, but, but he's a close second. So if you find that you're primarily described as being a person who doesn't have much love, then it begins to ask the question. It begins to kind of step into, Jesus said this is a primary characteristic whereby we are known by our love for one another. And, and, and further than that, by our love for those around us. We love God. We love people. But our experience repeatedly kind of fills in what the definition of love is, doesn't it? So even in those kind of marriage settings, those wedding ceremony settings, and you're there and, and, and she's just looking at him with puppy dog eyes and he's looking at her and, and hoping she doesn't realize what an what a, what a empty, hollow shell of a man he is. And so they're staring lovingly at one another, right? Professing all these wonderful things together and, and shaking and thinking, oh, this is so scary. And all of these things that, that you and I know by observing this couple and, and the length of their marriage and the length of their life together, they don't always live up to these words. They don't always model that, that love is patient, that love is kind, that it is enduring and all these various things. And in fact, maybe you, in, in, in thinking back to when you kind of spoke these words or things you've heard about love, you've seen love not lived up. You've seen love fallen short. You've seen love disappoint. You've seen love wound. You've seen love hurt. Or maybe you have used love as a weapon. You've used love to injure those around you. And so your experience tells you that love is something decidedly different than what Paul writes here in verses 4 through 7. Now, in 1970, a movie came out called Love Story. And admittedly, I've not seen it. But most of you have heard uh, one of the famous lines that comes from this movie. And they say, love means never having to say you're sorry. Love means never having to say you're sorry. And so it's really kind of getting at the idea, moving into the idea that love is unconditional. Now, we'll, we'll dissect that, segment, that statement here in a little bit later. But do we believe that? Or what, in, in essence, do we believe about love? Well, Paul writes rather poetically in verse 4, and he says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Man, that's the type of love I want to know in my life. And that's the type of love that I hope those who are in my life and close to me experience flowing through me. But I fear oftentimes that even though I aspire to have this kind of love, that I fall way short of it. 
Nevertheless, this is the love that God calls us to emulate and to live out in our Christian lives. So look at what he writes. In this, we have this list of 15 character traits, or really kind of this verbal idea, giving us the idea that love is, is more than just an action. Love is a repeated action characterized by all these course of many actions over the duration of our lives. And so within this list that Paul gives us, he gives us seven positive attributes, and he gives us eight things not to do. Now, one of the prevailing ideas of, of, of why, the, why the change there, why give us the positive and give us the negative, is quite simply that as Paul looked at Corinth and said, what things don't they have or what things are they engaged in that they should stop, and so the positive things were some of the things that they did, and the negative things were things that, man, they've got to cut that out if they want to be faithful to loving those around them. Well, look at how he starts. He has this couplet here. Love is patient and kind. Patience really is kind of a bummer. It's just, it's a serious bummer. Because patience requires me to enter into a relationship with somebody not knowing how this thing's going to work out, right? And so patience, I think the King James, we really should have never moved away from the translation there. It says, instead of saying patience, it says, love is long-suffering, it is long-suffering, right? And some of us are causing those around us to be engaged in suffering long. But in this idea, we, we, we really have to have patience for two things. One of the things we have to have patience for are the circumstances of people's lives. And the second thing we have to have patience for is people themselves. You know, circumstances are kind of beyond their control. And sometimes they're, they're beyond their control. And so if we're going to be lacking in patience for those things that are beyond someone's control. And so they're driving down the road and a car slams into their car and, 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 and now they're injured and we have to care for them. And if we go to them and say, what's wrong with you? Haven't you ever been hit by an 18-wheeler before? You act like this is the first time. And, and we show them no care or consideration. We're demonstrating that we have no patience for them. But people themselves require a terrific amount of patience. People themselves and, and, and their needs and their personalities can be draining on us. And we can be, by that same manner, draining on those around us. But the word tells us quite clearly that if we are to be those who are engaged in loving behavior, then we must be those who continually exhibit, display, and take on the difficulties of another's life, engaging in patience. We have to be patient people. I can remember in high school, uh, my youth pastor decided it would be a great thing for us to pray through the fruits of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, so on and so forth. And so uh, for each week, we had to pray through a, uh, a different characteristic or one of these different traits listed uh, in Galatians 5.22. And so I'm going through there, and I'm, I'm doing just swimmingly until I get down to praying for patience. And so we really begin to kind of pray in earnest in this, you know, as much as I could as a 17-year-old. Lord, help me to be patient. Now, when I utter this, my understanding is that God is just going to cosmically take over my body for the week or superintend all the things around me to help everybody be awesome, right? No. If I had known how it was going to work out, perhaps I would have prayed something else. God, help the people around me to be patient and help me to observe that keenly and then to step into that at some point in the future. Instead, I said, Lord, help me to be patient. And everything in the world went wrong, right? 
everybody around me needed something and needed something right then and right now. And I found, found myself on you know, Monday afternoon, so not long into this, just saying, why are all these people so incredibly insufferable? Why are they all so frustrating? And why am I in all these things? And recognizing that I had no inborn ability in and of myself to exercise patience. So what God showed me in this exercise, and I think what he shows us over and over again, is that we are unable to be patient outside of the movement of God in our lives. Quite simply, uh, people and their circumstances are too difficult for us to come close to them and to remain patient without the aid of the Holy Spirit. Look what he says next. He says, love is kind. No, no, kind is one of those kind of, just kind of, you know, vanilla words. It's like, oh, tell me about her. This girl, you've set me up on a blind date. And they say, well, she's really nice. Oh, that's, that's swell. Uh, so kind. And so what does it mean uh, to be kind? Well, quite simply, to be kind is to, to look to engage in the alleviation of the pain, worries, and fears of others and to cri- contribute positively to their happiness. So it's this holistic idea whereby we see someone engaged in pain or worry or, or suffering and we come near to them in the equipping of the Spirit with the gospel of Jesus Christ in such a way as to seek to alleviate the situation they find themselves in. And you can see then why he began with patience. Because in the midst of seeking to administer and to extend kindness to those around us, it's going to require a terrific amount of, of patience on our part. Why? Because one of the things you'll find if you invest yourself in the lives of very many people who have significant issues is they don't move quickly to address them. They don't move quickly to, the re- to address them. Character change, uh, change of situation doesn't happen overnight. It's not instantaneous. It is difficult, and it requires us to be patient. It requires us to be long-suffering. Man, what a great thing it is, what an amazing thing it is that someone has been kind to us, amen? And so in all of these opportunities, we have, we have an amazing responsibility as Christians to be kind to others. Now, this week presented us one such opportunity. Wednesday, as the storms blew through, we saw people's uh, homes wrecked with trees falling on them. We saw churches displaced. It presented an opportunity for us to do one of two things. Uh, initially, what we could have done is said, you know, that's really bad. I'm so glad that nothing happened to me and to mine, and, and just to thank God and praise God for his faithfulness, and certainly we should. But the second thing it should prompt from us is moving from just an observation that things are well with me to seeing when things aren't well with the people around us and stepping into those situations. And that's exactly what we had an opportunity, and that's what many of us did. And so finding those opportunities in life when somebody comes to you and says, my life's a wreck, it's a mess, it's just terrible, and we say, this is an opportunity for me to be kind. This is an opportunity for me to be kind. Beyond being kind, we also have to allow ourselves to receive the kindness of others. And how do you do this? By simply opening up to those around you and allowing them to step into the mess of your life and to allow the kindness of God to flow through the conduit of their lives to be visited upon you and all those around you. So love is patient. Love is kind. What Paul does next is he switches to the negative. Well, he's not made it very far in this list. And so we're beginning to see eight negative attributes that must not be a part of the Christian's life. He starts and he says, love does not envy. Love does not envy. 
Now, I tell you that today we've created an incredibly difficult atmosphere not to engage in envious behavior. Why? Because we've given people no small number of ways to report and and to direct to us all the amazing things that are going on in, in, in their lives. I'll give you an example. A few weeks ago, I walk into the office and an unnamed staff member tells me that they've just secured round-trip tickets for two to Hawaii for like 400 bucks. You hate them too, yes. <laughs> and so I, I, I'm hearing this, and, and in my heart, I'm not rejoicing at all. In fact, I think the question went something along the lines of, you can text your brother? Like, what's the deal? Did you win these? No, man, I bought them. I would have bought them. You couldn't, you couldn't text somebody and let them know, and, I, and I'm recognizing in my heart, envy, even now, moving on. <laughs> but man, love does not envy. We're going to be a people who rejoice at the good things that happen in the lives of those around us. it's easy in some sense to be broken when bad things happen around us, but we have this tendency when we see good things happening in the lives of those around us, we say, man, I really wish that would happen in my life. So we take our our eyes and our focus off having an opportunity to rejoice at this good thing that God has brought to our brother or sister, and we want it for ourselves. Instead, we need to be those who are eagerly anticipating the good thing and praying for the good thing that God would do in the lives of those around us. He says, love does not boast. Love isn't this this person who's repeatedly going around drawing attention to him or herself, talking about all the good things of themselves and all the good things that that are going on in their life. You know, there's a difference here. You see, if you primarily go around and, and the main reason you tell people about the amazing things that are going on in your life is so that you have an opportunity to talk about the great God who's given you these things, this is not boasting. This is, this is not boasting rather on yourself. This is boasting on God and his goodness. But if your primary kind of directive and, and the pent-up need inside you is, I want to go around and I want to talk about all the great things that are happening in me so that people will look at my life and be envious of me or they will celebrate me, then you're not engaging in a loving atmosphere. You're not being loving toward those around you. And in fact, you're you're violating the next principle that he talks about right here. You are engaging in arrogance. And love is not arrogant. Love doesn't give us the freedom and opportunity to be a bunch of navel gazers who are are predominantly preoccupied with self and how I am doing and, 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 and just I'm so stuck up and I have my nose so high in the air that I can't see the little people below me. Love, Christian love, presents an opportunity never to engage in such behavior. But I feel that this great misfortune has struck Christianity or Western Christianity that so many of us engage in an arrogant posture because we feel that God has blessed us so richly in salvation that we don't want to mess up our lives by engaging in those around us who aren't as privileged. Read into that. We have this false understanding that God does not care for them as much as he cares for us. Engage in arrogance, thinking more highly of ourselves than we should. Instead of looking at myself and saying, man, I am a humble sinner saved by grace. I am broken and needy. There is no place for arrogance in my life. 
Every false reporting of the superiority of who I am comes from the enemy and seeks to divorce me from those around me in need. Arrogance leads me to the false assumption that those who suffer deserve it and those who do well are me. Love is not arrogant. Look what he says next. He says, love is not rude. Now, we tell our kids all the time you shouldn't burp or pass gas at the table, but this seems to be not what Paul is talking about, right? So he's not talking about table manners. He's not talking about simply engaging in, 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 in rude or, or impolite behavior. Now, I, I think both of those things are pretty gross at the table, but that's not what he's talking about here. Where the ESV renders this word rude, what he's talking about is disgraceful and shameless behavior. Now, when he writes it to those there in Corinth, they're thinking through the list of things that they're guilty for, right? Sleeping with prostitutes, incest, uh, taking one another to court, and all the other various unseemly things they've been engaged in. Now, this is so uh, kind of fraught with difficulty when we begin to base our morality and our understanding of, of, of really kind of what is rude and, 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 and how do these things figure in our culture? Because as our culture moves further and further away from a biblical normative behavior, kind of Judeo-Christian normative behavior, and it embraces something that the Bible would say, this is errant, or this is sinful, or this is wrong, this isn't glorifying to God in such of this behavior, we begin to find that it gets difficult culturally to define what is rude and what is not rude. In fact, I think one of the difficult things as a Christian is how to engage lovingly in the midst of a situation that you know to be rude or, or shameless or immoral according to the Bible's rendering of it. How do we step in that space? How do we step in, in the middle of, of same-sex relationships and have a loving conversation with somebody who has a radically different worldview than you do? How do you do that? How do you step in the middle of somebody who is, is pro-choice and, 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 and thinks your view is, is absolutely immoral and wrong if, if you hold to a pro-life ethic? How do we have a conversation with them? Well, largely, I think you'd see that, that we don't. We don't have conversations uh, with people who hold opposing viewpoints to our own, uh, largely because we, we feel most comfortable creating a small group of people around us who have this echo chamber mentality that we do. I want people that espouse that have the same worldview that I do because that's most comfortable. I want people that, that, that look a lot like me because that's most comfortable. But if we're going to be true to faithfully extend the word of God, then we're going to find ourselves being labeled as rude and shameless and disgraceful, all the while extending to them love and seeking to, to hold the gospel out to them and say, no, just because you feel that this is what love is, here is what the gospel actually reveals it to be. And then allowing our lives to prove and to validate what God's word holds up to. And I can tell you it's incredibly difficult. But most of us quite simply just don't try, either for fear of failure, rejection, or being labeled small-minded. Be labeled small-minded. Don't actually be, but be labeled that. Be winsome in your articulation of the gospel. Read books that equip you on how to have conversations with people that dis disagree with you. Read books on euthanasia. Read books on same-sex attraction. Read books on the political left. 
Read books on these things. Engage and develop friendships with people that disagree with you and show them that your love for them through Jesus Christ overcomes the differences. For God's sake, don't be rude. He says, love does not insist on its own way. Love is so preoccupied in some sense, looking at ways to engage itself in the lives of those around us that we have no opportunities to insist on having our own way. One of my favorite verses flows out of Philippians 2 and verse 4. It says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Now, most of us have no problem scheduling opportunities to look to our own interests, right? Most of us don't have a problem with that. Some of you do, and we'll talk later. But most of you don't. Most of you don't. But if we're going to be loving to those around us, we cannot insist consistently on having our own way. We need to be champions for those around us. Why? Because the gospel compels us to be others-focused and others-centered. Now, in the midst of this, in the midst of constantly championing uh, for someone else and, 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 and being a voice and an advocate for somebody else, he offers an incredibly curative element to this. He said, love is not irritable. It's not irritable. It it doesn't just kind of have this immediate desire to respond in anger and animosity. Whoop, what's that? How do you say this word? Animosity. Y'all didn't know this. I came to this side of the room. Does that make you irritable? Does it, right? A number of years ago, my brother and I, my parents had just built a house, and they had it plumbed and had a water well out there. And my brother and I, neither one know anything about water wells or pumps, right? So we're adjusting it. And so we're out there increasing the water pressure. Now, there's no power hooked up to it yet. And so how are we going to test it? Don't know. So we're out there, and we're increasing. Why are you asking me all these questions? We're out there, and we're increasing turning this screw. And he says, do you think we should turn it two times? I say, well, two is good. Five is better. And so we're just cranking the screw down, right? So the electrician shows up, and he hooks the power to it, and it's just boom. It's going along swimmingly, and then it's boom, bang. And all of a sudden, you see the uh, the PSI meter just peg out on this water tank. And the water tank, apparently, not rated for as much pressure as we thought the shower needed. And so it's got this pop-off valve. So it goes bang, and all the pressure starts bleeding on this thing. And it scared me to death. And I said, I told you, one and a half turns. That's all it needed. Just one and a half. Turn that back. So it had this pop-off valve that indicated when it had reached a pressure that was no longer safe. Some of us, we have the pressure set so incredibly low for our pop-off valves that there's a reason people don't talk to you and there's a reason people don't disagree with you. And it's not because they do. It's because you're irritable. It's because every time they come to you, all you do is complain. It's because every time they voice something to you, all you do is tell them all the various ways that they're wrong. And according to this, You're not engaging in loving behavior towards them. You're not extending love towards them. You're engaged in the opposite. Next, he says, don't be resentful. Now, the the Greek renders this in a really interesting way. They're using a counting term. and In essence, they say, don't count up evil. Don't count up evil. Well, this is exactly what Peter was trying to figure out when he spoke to Jesus in Matthew 18. Matthew 18 and 21 and 22 says, Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I will forgive him? Seven times? 
And Jesus says to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Peter thought he was so clever, he had found this, this way to be incredibly gracious. Now, I can count to seven. I can't count to ten, but I can count to seven. And so this is what Peter sought to engage in. But if we're going to be those who are engaged in Christian love, then we must not be resentful. We're not storing up resent within us. We're not storing up opportunities to account for the failure that somebody has engaged against us. We are forgiving them. We must not be resentful. Look at what he says. Let's look at six altogether. He says, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. This just kind of couples the idea of being envious. We tend to be envious when good things happen to people. And that same thing has this sick, sadistic cousin who doesn't just kind of stop there, but when he sees bad things happen to people, he rejoices or she rejoices. We cannot be those who rejoice at wrongdoing. It tends to be, does it not, that when we see something bad to happen to somebody we don't particularly care for, we have this sick sense of joy and giddiness deep in our hearts. Hopefully we don't share it with people. We don't want people to really know how depraved and how vile we are. But he looks at this and says, we need to be broken. We need to be saddened. We need to be forlorn when we see bad things happen, even to people we don't care for. Because it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Do you rejoice with the truth? Do you rejoice at the suffering that the gospel brings to you when you extend its truth to somebody else and they cut you out of their lives? Do you rejoice with the truth when the truth costs you something? The Bible tells us that we need to be those who rejoice with the truth. Now look at this. Paul ends with four positive statements. He says, love bears all, believes all, hopes all, and endures all. Love bears all things. By the power of the Holy Spirit at work within you, through the sealed promise given to you through the blood of Jesus Christ, you have the ability to bear significant difficulty. Galatians 6.2 tells us that we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This isn't talking necessarily about bearing abuse that comes your way but about being willing to bear the difficulties of someone else's life. So that when someone comes to you, a spouse, a child, a friend, a stranger, comes to you and they communicate to you what they're struggling with, the difficulties difficulties they're going through, your primary response isn't to find someone else to shoulder the burden. Your primary response to say, is this God bringing their burden to me to bear? Can I love them now? And praying, saying, God, would you make me, help me to be somebody worthy of bearing their burden? It says it believes all things. Ultimately, as we put our faith fully and finally in Jesus, we believe all things. This isn't saying that we are primarily fundamentally gullible people, where somebody comes up to you and you says, uh, the sky is falling, you, you run around and say, oh my goodness, the sky is falling. But you're somebody who finds their fundamental belief firmly rooted in Christ and from there moves forward fearlessly to engage the culture. Why? Because you are not misdirected, you are not shaken, 
You are not deterred when you encounter difficulty because your faith, your provision, and your trust rests in him. And we set our hope on him. Every four years or so, and more frequently in other elections, we set our hope on an election process. We set our hope on, on, on the lesser of two evils to go through and to help laws be passed that will make life more tolerable for us. And we're consistently tempted to hope in something other than Jesus. To hope in our abilities, to hope in, 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 in our strength, to hope in the strength of those around us. But scripture causes us and calls us to hope fundamentally in Jesus. And in the midst of that hoping in him and finding ourselves solidified in him, we extend that hope to others. Consistently hoping for the gospel's truth to find prominence and root in their hearts. And he says it is in it in endures all things. James tells us in James 1.12 that we are to be steadfast under trial. And this is really what a picture of endurance looks like. Being steadfast under trial. Have you noticed that it's a whole lot easier to be steadfast when nothing's going wrong? How are you doing? I am enduring. Tell me what's going wrong. Not a whole lot, but I'm just like, I'm ready. I'm ready to endure. And in the midst of enduring, how are you doing? I am crushed. I am dying. What happened? It's Monday. My alarm went off. I'm just preparing. Man, we have an opportunity to be steadfast under trial because we are firmly rooted in him. And he can help you be steadfast. And he can help you stand strong. If you'll trust in him. If you'll rest in him. As we look at this list of 15 various attributes of what love is and of what love isn't, it primarily kind of presents us an opportunity to engage in three actions. If we're going to be true to this list, if we're going to be true to the response of Christians, one, we have to be open to engage. If you're closed off in your sphere of influence, if you're closed off in your friend group and in your family, then you will likely find it easier to come closer to failing at fewer of these attributes. But if you're open, if in your prayer life and if in your heart you would say, God, who would you bring across my path that needs to see Christian love? God, I'm open to, to anybody. I'm open to the most difficult person. Who would that be? I believe this is the prayer that he would ask us to pray. Not that we would find creative ways to isolate ourselves against difficult people, but that we would openly embrace difficult people, recognizing that there are those in life who see you, friend, as difficult. We need to be vulnerable. We need to be vulnerable. As well, within the confines of a church, as extending these things of love to others, there are some of us within the confines of this church who need to be loved. You need to experience these things in your life. And for too long, you have been self-sufficient. For too long, you have been isolated. But the call of Christian community and the call of the gospel would see you go out and to receive the love of those around you. That's difficult, right? It's difficult because you've been failed in the past. And it's difficult because you're going to be failed in the future. There are those that you have opened up your heart to, your life to, that have betrayed you. 
They have betrayed your trust. They have hurt those around you. But I believe the call of the gospel sees us going back in to community and once again being vulnerable. Once again, putting ourselves out there and once again asking God and letting him know that we need to receive his love through those around us. You know, maybe as you've read this list, you've looked at this and and you begin to kind of check these things off. You say, it's 15, I'm going to double up one day. Over the next two weeks, I'm going to perfect this list of attributes. I'm going to perfect this list of characteristics. But in the midst of this, you would say of yourself that, that, that you don't know Jesus. You can only begin to approach this list of attributes and characteristics from a place of already having received the ultimate love of God. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 2 and verse 4, and he says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that it is the kindness of God that is meant to lead you to repentance? Friends, God beckons you to come and to receive his love, to come and to experience his love. Love does not mean never having to say you're sorry. It doesn't mean that. A couple of psychologists engaged in a study on a a needs-based model of reconciliation. And they sought to explain why broken relationships can't move forward until atonement has been met. So you you have a breach of trust. You have a, a lie that you've engaged in. And this is what they discovered. It can't move forward until atonement has been made. Isn't that interesting? That a breach of trust in a relationship can't move forward until atonement has been made. Now look into their findings. They said it can't move forward until atonement has been made by the perpetrator. By the one who has done wrong. But the goodness and loving kindness of the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that even when we are in the midst of doing wrong, even when we are sinful and far away from God, at the right time, Christ died for us. You and I were the perpetrators visiting our offense and violence against God, and the Bible calls that sin. And in the midst of our sinfulness, in our waywardness, and engaged in primarily unloving behavior towards this creator God. In the midst of this, he took it upon himself to engage in atoning for our failure. The study goes on to say that absolution can be granted by the victim at the moment that atonement is satisfied. But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we recognize that absolution is granted by the one who has sinned against. Jesus Christ died on a cross. He took on your sin and my sin so that we might receive the love of God. And so that having received the love of God, we might extend it to those around us. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your grace. God, I'm thankful that in salvation, you weren't waiting for us to make an atonement for our sins, but through the blood of 
your son's cross, that you have made atonement for our sins. Father, I pray today for those in this room who look at this list of characteristics of love and they've never seen anything like this in their life. They've never felt anything like this in their life. God, that today they would experience the love that you have for them through your son Jesus. So we ask your spirit to move in their lives concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, that you would convict them and you would lead them into repentance. God, I pray for our community here, for this body and for the other church bodies across our city. Help us to be quick and ready to extend love to those around us. God, help us not merely to be caught up in, in, in doing of things and cutting out of trees or roofs or whatever thing you've called us into, but help us in the midst of these things to report we've done this because we love you through Jesus. Help us use the tools you've given us to tell of the goodness of your son and his shed blood on the cross. God, help us to be a loving people. and Help us to be a loved people that we would both give and receive love in this place. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.